0: Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. My guest on today's first meeting is Dan Rasmussen, the founder and portfolio manager at Verdad Advisors, which he launched in 2014 to replicate the historical success of private equity in the public markets. He's an outspoken critic of the market's enthusiasm for private equity, resulting from research he conducted in the business while working at Bain Capital. Our conversation covers Dan's early education in the Socratic method, research into why private equity works. Current risk in the private equity and private credit markets, and the launch of Verdad to find private equity like outcomes in the public markets. We then turn to Verdad, including key lessons upon shifting to public equity investing, stock screens, portfolio construction, position sizing, and the competitive advantage of capacity constraints. Lastly, we touch on Verdad's written research and preparing a portfolio for a recession. If you like Dan's thought process, you can sign up to receive his team's weekly research at verdadcap.com slash strategy. Please enjoy my first meeting with Dan Rasmussen of Verdad Advisors. Dan, thanks for coming by. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Ted. You and your team have written a lot about what you're doing. Over the holiday, I read Malcolm Gladwell's new book, talking to strangers. and He talks about this concept of default to truth and how some people that in the minority don't do that and effectively means they're natural cynics. That certainly comes through in both your work and particularly having seen you speak on occasion. Take me back to, I don't know, your childhood or whatever. Where did this come from, this kind of innate
1: skepticism and cynicism in you? I hope it doesn't veer into cynicism. I think Gladwell points out that that would be corrosive to social trust, which obviously I think can be bad. But I grew up in a family of four kids, and my dad is an antitrust lawyer. And we'd have family dinner every night, and my dad would put us each on the witness stand. How did that science test go? Oh, I got to be on Why do you got to be? If I didn't study hard. Why didn't you study hard enough? Do you think if you studied more, you would have done better? And I think this constant Socratic method more than a cynical or skeptical perspective, it's just asking the second and third order questions and asking for proof. You said you did okay on that, show me how you actually did. And I think that's a legal mindset. And I think my father's sort of legal mind shaped me so much, both in sort of saying, hey, trust, but verify. And also, I think, something that is maybe unusual is in applying concepts and principles that I read to what I do, that there should actually be a flow through from reading logic, coming up with a, a rule or a guide for behavior, and then acting in accordance with that. And I find that that's actually relatively rare in investing. I think a lot of people are very story-driven, and they're very idiosyncratic-driven, so they're bottoms-up, quote-unquote. And they don't say, well, I'm going to do X, but would X, if it were applied as a broader rule, be a good idea? And I think that legal thinking is really what shapes a lot of my approach to investing. And I think in the best case, I'm not a pure quant. In the best case, the finest legal minds, it's a balance of, of saying... Of course, there's a gray area to every law. Of course, the most interesting things are the test cases. And so you can't just apply a law by rote. What is first degree murder? You have to have this juridical process where you say, is this black or is it white or is it gray? And how do I analyze that? Even if you're starting from a rules-based perspective.
0: Were your siblings the same as a result of those dinners?
1: Oh, I think so. Yeah. My sister manages an endowment and my brother uh, does PR work, and my younger brother works in real estate private equity investing. So I think my dad's early coaching worked in all of our cases.
0: Okay, so take me through to where your initial interest in investing came from.
1: My junior year of college, I was studying history and literature. I was studying the 19th century American South, slavery, and Faulkner, and this whole antebellum world. And trying to figure out what I should do with my life. And my dad said, Well, look, it's a natural thing for humanities majors to go into law. But I went into law in 1976, I was the top of my class. Mitt Romney, who sat next to me, was at the bottom of the class. He and a bunch of other people went into business. They made five times more money than me, retired 10 years earlier, and worked half a start and weren't as smart. So, if I were you, (laughs) don't go into law, go into business because I saw so many people from my law school class go in and do that and succeed in a way that, that was really remarkable. And so I said, okay, great. I know nothing about business. I'll apply to a bunch of places. I ended up getting an internship at Bridgewater. And I felt so behind coming into Bridgewater because I didn't know accounting. I didn't know the first thing about economics. So I asked my older sister, I said, hey, what are all the best books to read about investing? And so she gave me this long reading list. And so I just started reading things like Daniel Kahneman's work and A Random Walk Down Wall Street. Ended up not going back to Bridgewater, going to Bank Capital. And when I arrived at Bank Capital... I realized that, well, I didn't have any of the skills. I couldn't do Excel models. I didn't know accounting. But at the same time, actually, very few people had actually read all these sort of academic finance treatises or familiar with the ideas. And some of them are not only very applicable, but Kahneman directly talks, for example, about earnings forecasts. He says, look, there's a huge amount of work done on earnings forecasts. Nobody can forecast earnings. Yet. People keep trying. You arrive at a place like Bain Capital, a very fundamentally oriented shop. Everyone's building these earnings models. You say, hey, have you guys ever tested the accuracy of these models? Nope. No, we never. Done it. Do you think they're accurate? Oh, yeah, very much so. Why do you think? And you start to say, well, why is it that the lived reality of finance doesn't accord with what I read in these books? So I sort of had this outsider's perspective coming into the industry that I think shaped my reactions to it. Bridgewater, of course, I think had a huge impact on my interest in investing. Bridgewater is like take MIT and Harvard's economics department and Stanford and Caltech's comp sci department and have them run by a cult leader and shift that all together and you've got Bridgewater. It's unbelievable brilliance in a high intensity environment. But the two underlying principles that I took away from Bridgewater, one of which was very in line with my upbringing, which is that everything you do should be based on logic and that logic should be applied systematically, which made absolute sense to me. And the second, which was sort of a novel idea to me, was that you should test every one of those logical rules empirically. Test it over 50 years, test it in the US, test it in Japan, test it in Europe. Does it work across all of them? And if so, it's a good rule. And that's the way you should evaluate investing decisions and investing strategies, not based on stories, not based on idiosyncratic things, but based on long-term evidence to prove out logical empirical hypotheses. Okay. So when you started at Bain-Cap,
0: Were you on the public side or the private side? Private equity. Okay. And walk me through your sort of learnings and the evolution of your time there.
1: I think I started, as many people at the time were, and probably many more uh, still are today, a complete believer in private equity. I mean, it's why I wanted to do it. I thought, okay, here we're going to go. Like, you look at the returns. They're amazing. So clearly these people are doing something very, very right. And then second, when you hear what they say they're doing, they're really getting to know companies. They're doing very deep due diligence on private companies. And then they're improving their operations. They're streamlining governance. They're making things more efficient. And that story resonated with me a lot. And I totally bought into it. And I'd say for my first few years, I was really in love with the job. People at Bank Capital are brilliant. It's a wonderful place, great culture. And diving into doing these LBOs. And then in 2011, the partners at the firm we're looking at their two pre crisis funds and wondering what had gone wrong. What can we learn from 06 and 08, those two vintage year funds? What can we study and learn? And so I was assigned to this team for a year. And our job was to look at Bank Capital as we would look at a potential acquisition and say, hey, here's what works and doesn't work about our process. And that had this 180 degree turn in my perspective on investing in private equity because of what we learned. That sort of led to what I think now people perceive to be maybe cynicism or skepticism, but really was just an empirical reaction to the data I looked at. And the data that I looked at said a few things. First, it said that private equity had made the majority of its money in deals done at less than seven times EBITDA. And when those profits were made, If you think about private equity over time, there was a time in the 80s and 90s where private markets were much cheaper than public markets, and you could go and buy a small company, you could use leverage to buy it, and you had a natural exit. You could sell to a strategic, you could IPO if it got big enough. You could roll things together, and you are getting multiple expansion. Well, if you buy things cheap and you get levered multiple expansion, it turns out it's a phenomenally good idea. It's a wonderful strategy. And you have no mark to market. So risk looks insanely low. The returns look insanely high. But what starts to happen as people pick up on this, and this is sort of a constant story in finance, is that the returns start to get arbed away. And the way they get arbed away is that the purchase multiples go up for private companies. They're more private equity capital or chasing too few deals. Same thing's going up for auction. If you have 40 PE firms that auction, that thing's not going to go for a multiple that's below what the company's worth. It just isn't. And then the second thing that became problematic, and really this was no 06 07 08, one of the big lessons, is the leverage. So if you pay a lot of money, generally you're still putting on a lot of debt. So you're putting the same percentage debt. So if you're buying something at 10 times EBITDA, you might be putting 6 turns of EBITDA of debt on it. You pay 15, you're putting 8 turns of debt. And what we've found is that those levels of debt are really risky a much higher percentage of very levered companies go bankrupt than less levered companies. So as you pay higher prices, you're getting hit in private equity in two ways. The first way, you can't get that multiple expansion anymore. And the second way is you're increasing your bankruptcy risk by taking on so much debt. So if anything goes wrong with an 8x levered microcap, which is what the majority of PE deals look like these days, you're in big trouble, big trouble. And then the next natural counter response, which I think is a really interesting one, is to say, okay, well, let's think about the reason that we pay Higher prices for some companies than others. And there are two broad reasons why you pay higher prices for a company. Reason number one is a higher growth rate. And I think what we found empirically was that growth is really hard, if not impossible, to predict. Not only is it impossible to predict, it's just wildly volatile. You can have a company you thought was going to grow 15% that declines, and that's very common. It doesn't matter if you're forecasting one year away, three years away, or five years away. It's all really difficult to the point of probably being impossible. I mean, that's what all the academic research says, and that's what we found. So, as a rule, justifying high purchase prices based on high growth rates is a really risky thing. The other justification, which probably has more merit, is you might pay higher prices for a higher quality business. And when I think of higher quality, the first thing I think of is a lower chance of bankruptcy. And the second thing I think of is a higher return on assets, a sort of compounder. You should pay higher prices for business. That has great reinvestment opportunities. That, I think, is empirically supported. However, That and LBOs don't mix. Why do that and LBOs don't mix? Because a firm that has 8x debt to EBITDA that is taking out all of its excess free cash flow to pay interest can't reinvest for growth. So why buy a compounder and lever it up? In theory, you should have much higher return opportunities other than paying interest. So I think that one shouldn't do that in unlevered firms. Great idea. It's worth a higher price to buy those great companies. If you say, hey, I paid 20 times EBITDA for this company because it's going to grow EBITDA 15% per year, well, unfortunately, unless you're in fantasy land, growth requires capital investment. Maybe it's a sales force, maybe it's not in CapEx, maybe it's SGNA, but it requires investment, not spitting out cash to pay interest. So, just by putting on that debt load, you're endangering the growth prospects.
0: So, when you looked at the empirical data, there's a key signal you saw in price. Yeah. The private equity firms will talk about improved operations. What did you see in the data in terms of the ability to improve the operations, whether it's top line or bottom line?
1: Yeah, so I think top line is the same thing. You can't predict revenue growth, and it's really hard to control it. Wish we could, and if it were possible, there'd be a class at Harvard Business School, how to drive revenue growth, okay? It's just impossible and unpredictable. And maybe you get things right, maybe you get things wrong, but it's really hard to predict revenue growth. Unless I'd say the one exception to that is this sort of compounding businesses where you can see a clear return on investment. You know, okay, I increased spending by $100 That should lead to an incremental. That's a logical way I think you can predict revenue. But without investment, sort of same-store sales type growth, really, really hard to predict. Bottom line, I think private equity is better. I think the empirical evidence would show that private equity firms are good at cost cutting. They are good at cutting the fat. They are good at streamlining operations. And we saw that a lot in the data. However, these days, if you're buying a company, the majority of private equity acquisitions are from other private equity firms. So now you have to make a case that your private equity firm is better at cost-cutting than the previous private equity firm, or those idiots that sold it to you didn't. In contrast, I think a lot of what you see is that to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, let's say you have a SaaS software company you want to show fast EBITDA growth. The year before acquisition, cut half the headcount and the support staff. EBITDA is going to grow. And you sell it before your customers fire you because there's no support for a year. There are these, I think, excessive cost cutting, which can lead to deep problems. And then
0: the last lever is the financing environment. So the private company has this optionality to refinance their debt. They have too much debt. With all this money on the sidelines, they could put more equity in and extend the option on the ownership of the business. How do you think about that optionality in terms of the success historically
1: of private equity investments? I think leverage is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, if you finance something with 90% debt to enterprise value and you increase enterprise value, then levering at 90% was an amazingly good idea. On the other hand, debt imposes certain handcuffs on a business and not only is it most handcuffs, it increases bankruptcy risk. If anything goes wrong on the top line or the bottom line, you're going to be in trouble. Now, the environment that we've been in, and it's been really interesting since the financial crisis, has been one of very, very benign default environment. There's been very few bankruptcies outside of energy and retail in a few troubled areas, very, very little bankruptcy, falling rates, and also in private equity world, the massive influx of private credit money. And private credit is a really frightening development. So private credit, basically the banks, starting after the 98-01 and recession, started to really get out of risky corporate lending. Because they basically found it was unprofitable, and they always realized it was unprofitable at the worst times. right? The recession comes and all that stuff, you underwrote an 8% yield. All of a sudden, so much of it defaults, you end up with a 4% return when you could have lent a double B bond at 5%. And you're saying, oh my God, why did I go through all the headache of doing these small business loans? So the banks started to get out of that business. Then after '08, they really got out of it because the feds came in and said, hey, gee, don't lend above six times net debt to EBITDA. We've done all this research. Above six times debt to EBITDA is really too dangerous. Don't do it. OK, so the banks exit. The regulators say it's a bad idea. And then private credit funds enter. This new, not new, it's been around, but massively increased asset class. Some of it, private equity firms starting their own private lenders. Some of it, de novo private lending. Some of it, people that left the banks. And they basically start buying market share by offering the riskiest loans. So they're offering unit tranche, eight times debt to EBITDA loans with no covenants, and basically, because they don't want to show their LPs that any of their loans have defaulted, they're basically like the easiest people to negotiate with. If you have to miss a payment or you know something's going wrong, you just call them up and say, hey, so the introduction of private credit has even more supercharged what's going on in private equity. From people I've talked to in the industry, and this is purely anecdotal, I don't have data to support this, but a l- increasingly large percentage of private equity LBOs are facing what they would call quote unquote liquidity problems. What is a liquidity problem? A liquidity problem is when you cannot pay interest out of your free cash flow. That is a liquidity problem. And from what I'm hearing, this is an increasingly large share of private equity deals. Because it turns out when you put six, seven, eight turns of debt on, really hard to pay the interest payments on that. And I think that right now you've got an environment where the massive increase in private debt And the interest of private credit lenders in covering up anything that looks bad in their portfolio saying, raise the next fund, is basically leading this environment where even if your company has a quote unquote liquidity problem, it doesn't matter because you can renegotiate with the lender or borrow more. So none of the chickens have come home to roost. And the risk taking is being amped up as a result. Because again, exactly what you said, right? You have this extended option. Okay, they'll, they'll refi it. So I've got another three or four years to see if I can turn this thing around. And I think the negative on that for the investor side is your money is trapped there. Do you want your money trapped in something that would have gone bankrupt, but maybe won't? Maybe we'll be able to get our money back in five years? Would you rather put it in Apple or Microsoft or something? And I think that's why you're starting to see a few things happen in private equity. You're seeing falling returns. You're also seeing rising hold periods. All this is happening in what's a benign, if not solid economic backdrop.
0: Should that economic environment change in any way, how do you think this plays out? Because on the one hand, right, the Softening economics would tell you businesses will fall, you'll have defaults. On the other hand, there's so much money on the sidelines in private equity and private credit to boost this. So how do you think about what that looks like in the out years?
1: It's really tough to say. I'll give you two sort of extreme scenarios. On the one hand, I would call a normal business environment, which is there's a recession. What happens in a recession? Things that are over go bankrupt. And so you see a default wave. And so much of private equity today of LBOs is single B or triple C type quality that I would say 25 to 30% of LBOs would go bankrupt in a normal business cycle, normal recession with normal levels of delinquency. So that's sort of normal scenario. But it seems like in this world we live in, nothing is ever normal, right? Especially the post-financial crisis, it seems like we live in an upside down world. So what's the sort of upside down world possibility. And I'd say it's roughly looks like what happened with energy private equity. Energy private equity is fascinating, because 2013, 14, and 15 vintages of energy private equity funds, when oil prices drop 70%, they've started to rebound a little bit, a huge drop in oil prices, S&P small cap energy down 70 or 80% peak to trough, 90 plus percent of 2013, 14, and 15 energy private equity funds are marked above one. Okay? So... You look at that and you say, that may be the other possibility, which is that the chickens never seem to come home to roost. There's this extend and pretend zombie-type behavior where the money that you put into private equity never blows up, but you never get it back. You know? <laughs> and I think that's probably the most likely scenario, which things look, oh, yeah, our fund's still marked at 1, 1.1, Yeah, generating an 8% IRR. When are we going to exit? When are we going to, oh, you know, in a few years, we're making operational improvements. And I think that that's the type of stuff that easy money can sustain.
0: Yeah. Interesting. So at what point in time in your tenure at Bain did you decide that the empirical data you were seeing almost required you to do something else?
1: It was right after doing that, after doing that study. And I think my first instinct was to say, well, why doesn't Bain do this? And I think the reason that Bain and most private equity firms can't do it, is competition. Okay, great. You think it's a good idea to buy things at six times EBITDA. Okay, where are you going to buy them? Not in the US, right? Too much competition. Now, I think in Europe or in Asia, I think there are still cheap LBO opportunities, right? So a firm like Bain or Blackstone, they're still seeing opportunities to do really attractive buyouts ex-US. But within the US, you can't. The opportunity's been gone. And now I think private markets are much more expensive than public markets, and you can see this with the venture back stuff, like WeWork. Private markets say it's worth $75 billion. Public markets say it's worthless. You can see it in the deal multiples, where if S&P 500 is at 12 to 13 times EBITDA, private equity claims it's at 12 to 13 times EBITDA. But you know those EBITDA numbers are not accounting for all the pro forma adjustments, which people say is like 25% of EBITDA. So you do that math, and they're trading basically buying micro caps at 16 times EBITDA. When the S&P 500 is trading at 12 or 13, that's just nuts. It ain't going to work. It defies logic. And it wasn't as bad then as it was now, but it was roughly that bad. And so what I thought is, okay, OK, we've done this work. And the peers that we studied as part of our effort were some of the best investors for 20 years. Unbelievable records, the best of the best. And now we figured out what they did. And it was relatively simple. They bought things at 6 or 7 times EBITDA, 50 or 60% levered. Oftentimes they bought companies that ended up growing, and maybe you can attribute that to skill, and ended up exiting them at very high rates of return. So why don't I try to do that? Okay, well, where can I go and buy that stuff? And the answer that I found is I just ran a capital IQ screen. I said, hey, show me every public company in the world that trades at less than seven times EBITDA that's about 50% or more levered. Do they even exist? And my first screen came up with like 500 names. And I'm like, 500 of these? All I have to do, rather than like beating my head against a wall to commence some like lawn care business in Iowa to sell to me for seven months and then having someone else pay two times turns of Utah more for the thing in an auction, and I'm done and go back to the drawing board. I can literally sit here in a computer screen. So I've I've literally got 500 things that are right in the sweet spot of what I think works. And all I need to do is choose the best 50 or 40 or 30. That seems like a much better strategy and much more fun than doing all the deal and So that's what led me to start for Dad and say, hey, this is a great idea. Let me go do it. There was a lot I learned in going from private markets to public markets. First, we had so little data in private markets. People said, oh, private markets has so much more data than public markets. Yeah, except balance sheets. Except a lot of things that public market investors take for granted are gap financials. So coming to the public markets, I knew that it was good to buy things at low multiples of EBITDA that were levered. There was so much I didn't know. And there are a number of things I learned. One of the big ones is don't buy things that go bankrupt, which, again, in private markets, you don't really worry about it because you're going to extend and pretend. And by the time you get through your diligence process, you're pretty well sure. But when you start with the universe of public companies that have those equivalent financial stats, a lot of those things are really bad shape. They're triple C rated. They're on a road to bankruptcy. It's frontier communications. It's half of the shale. And so you've basically, what I learned quite quickly from making a few mistakes, nothing that I bought that went bankrupt, but stuff that I bought that a year later, two years later went bankrupt and I lost a lot of money on it, was to say, okay, we need to buy small, cheap, and levered companies. That's a really good idea. If I'm a French, everyone says buying small, cheap companies and the sort of insight from PE that a little bit of leverage is helpful. But you've got to buy the ones that don't go bankrupt. And I think that is the figuring out which companies are going to go bankrupt is a solvable problem. The credit ratings agencies do a darn good job at forecasting which companies are likely to go bankrupt. So there's a science to it. It's a really interesting field. And merging that with small cap investing basically, in my mind, is the ideal of how you want to do it. So it sounds
0: like as you go through your process at dad you start with this this filter. Yep of certain criteria of, say, low, EBITDA multiple, and leverage, and then you're trying to figure out which of those won't go bankrupt. How many
1: companies does that leave you to then filter through? So we divide it regionally, North America, Europe, and Japan. So. In each of them, you want to start with basically the traditional value screens that should be relatively obvious to anyone who's ever read Fama and French or familiar with the academic literature, right? You want to s- essentially rank by multiple valuation metrics like EV, EBIT to EV, free cash flow yield, price to book. The things that sort of score well on those blended value factors are going to be the things that are most attractive. I think within that, we specialize in the levered ones that are, have the high probability for deleveraging, which is very related to free cash flow yield. These are not Dissonant concepts, but we're going to focus on the ones that are levered because when they get multiple expansion and they're levered, that's where you really make a ton of money. So we start with that universe and then we apply two machine learning algorithm tools that we developed. So the first looks at the probability of debt pay down and basically says, okay, we took 60 years of US company financials. We said, based on year negative one, how likely was this company to pay down debt in year zero? And basically score every company on that and eliminate the ones that look like they're not going to pay down debt, which are essentially bankruptcy risks. The second thing we did is we took those models, we ran those for 30 years, and we looked at where those models made mistakes. So basically, what are the third of worst outcomes? Your model says it generates a 40% return, it's a negative 50, let's tag that as a one, let's tag it and everything else is a zero, and train another machine learning model just to criticize the other model, which sort of fits with my personality too.
0: absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. <laughs> so in that first machine learning model, what are the feature set of the model
1: that you found is predictive of the companies yeah. more or less likely to go yeah. bankrupt? So it's all logical. And good machine learning is, first of all, going to find things that regressions find, and then it's going to fine tune. So if your machine learning is finding something that standard regression models didn't find, it's probably not a good model. The big things are obvious in the data set. So, I'd say the first thing, the biggest predictors of debt pay down are did they pay down debt last year? What's the free cash flow? What's the free cash flow relative to debt? I mean, these things are not totally surprising, but it's honing the probabilities and looking at things like, oh, gee, but if they did a massive impairment charge, that might be a really worrisome signal. It's basically all the nuances that the machine learning helps you identify. And then the second model, which looks at errors. In our existing model. So we were really excited about this because we got the first results back and it said it could predict errors with 50% accuracy. So if you think 30% of our universe is tagged as an error and it's predicted with 50% accuracy, that's a big lift. So we said, okay, great, like we're geniuses. And then we ran a study of, well, what are the returns based on that probability being wrong score? And we basically found it was a linear correlation. So the higher the risk you took of your model being wrong, the higher the returns were. So we basically just proved that markets were efficient, which was an interesting finding, but not necessarily helpful. But we found basically at the tail ends of that, There's sort of two scenarios. One is that you've got something that scores really well on your model, that your other model is saying, hey, you're pretty likely to be right here. That's probably worth considering, uh, worth increasing in rank. And the other scenario is you've got something your existing model loves that your model is saying, hey, this is in the... 5% of most extreme danger, don't touch this. When we first ran it, we said, okay, let's just go through like what is this model telling us it doesn't like? And it was like offshore drilling companies. There's like this list of companies it hated. And we we're like, okay, this is telling us something that is in line with my fundamental view of the way the world works, that companies like that might be a little bit too risky for us. So that's basically our process. We divide it, Europe, Japan, North America. In Japan, you don't need the machine learning, okay? You don't need much of anything fancy. And the reason you don't need anything fancy in Japan is that nothing goes bankrupt. So the Japanese government basically has eliminated bankruptcy for corporations, so you don't need any risk controls. (laughs) Just buy the cheapest, most levered, highest free cash flow yielding stuff, and you're basically good in Japan. In Europe and North America, you've got to pay a lot more attention to quality. And I'd say in each of those regions, we're going to start probably with a list of about 100 companies, and from there, we're going to start with the top ranked, and we're going to go through and say, OK, in sort of that legal process I referred to at the beginning, the law, which is our quantitative elaboration of our ideas, is saying that this is a really good company. But we, as sort of a intelligent, fundamentally trained analyst, might be able to differentiate between something that looks really good to a model and is a total disaster. It's a Chilean mining company where the CEO is in prison for corruption. And you just step back and say, I don't know. I get why the computer likes it, but this probably isn't what our LPs want to own, and it's too risky. It's cheap for the wrong reasons. Versus a company which, say, might be producing some commodity auto part. You say, hey, I get why investors hate this commodity auto part company. It's got no mode. It's got no competitive advantage. It's tied to the auto cycle. But for three times EBITDA – Why not take a chance on this one? As a part of a portfolio that's diversified, this is it perfectly in line with our views of the way the world should work. There's nothing fundamentally damning about it being that type of business or that type of part or whatever. It's just investor pessimism and hatred. And again, this isn't a true compounding business. It's not some company you want to buy and stuff in your son's retirement account for 40 years. You basically want to buy it, have it trade up back to where fundamental value is and then sell it. But that's where I think we specialize.
0: How do you think about
1: incorporating management teams? I did this big study on that because i got that question a lot. So we basically said, okay, what we want to look at is CEO quality. So management teams, let's just narrow it to the CEO. And we can think about quality in two ways. And you'll detect a hint of sarcasm to this, but we'll define the first way as do they have a great pedigree, okay? So they went to a top business school, or any business school. They went to a top Ivy League institution. Second is their own track record. So they were either CEO of another company and then got hired to run this company. So we can look at their track record of the prior company and then this company. And then we can also look at just, hey, how do they do the last three years? Does that predict the next three years at the same company for people that have longer tenures? And what we found were all these tests had no statistical significance. It turns out that going to business school empirically does not mean that your stock price does better. Turns out working in an investment bank or top tier consulting firm has no impact on the stock price of the company that you run. Turns out that your track record at a prior company has no impact. Also turns out that your tenure at that company itself has no predictive power. So every one of these tests failed. And so what I look at that and say is there might well be great CEOs. Of course there are. But can we identify them ex-ante? And can not only we identify them ex-ante, but is that ex-ante identification not priced in? So there are possibilities, right? Maybe on a fundamental metric, some CEOs do better on stock price. It's not true. And this is more of a political point, but I don't think that executive compensation should be tied to share price because the share price is so volatile and so wild. And it doesn't look like from this data that who the CEO is, is having much of an impact on share price. In that assessment, I would think you'd
0: be more interested in the impact of the CEO on the underlying business fundamentals than on the share price. And we didn't look at that. This was purely based on the share price. So you don't know if the underlying economics of the businesses do better if the CEO is better. Okay. When you go through this work, okay, now we're constructing the portfolio. How do you think about what the portfolios should look like?
1: So I think that you basically want to have the best on these metrics. So you want to be the cheapest, highest free cash flow yield. And you also, in Europe and the US, want highest quality. So ideally, if you can have a higher credit quality as measured by lower debt to assets, lower debt to EBITDA, higher free cash flow to debt, all those things are going to be beneficial. So we're very focused first and foremost on making sure the portfolio is maximizing those quantitative criteria. And then second, within that, you don't want correlated risk. So you want to diversify your bets. Because you could be really wrong about the auto cycle. And you better hope that you are right about that packaged food company in London. Because you've got to have those big winners that make up for what are inevitably going to be big losers in a deep value levered portfolio. So we're looking for dispersion. An important thing about having very high dispersion is having diversification. So we're trying to, let's say something is ranked number 70th, but it's the only technology company in our top 100. We're going to put that in the portfolio, even though it's a little lower ranked. Maybe it has a little bit worse score than something else, because it's going to add diversification, and it's an uncorrelated bet to the rest of our portfolio. So I think that's how we think about it. And then I think there's obviously rebalancing. So I think once your portfolio is in motion, every quarter you're basically saying, okay, everything moves so much. Valuations move so much. In small caps, fundamentals move so much. You can go from cash flow positive to cash flow negative very, very quickly. And so a big part of it is saying, okay, we got to prune either, both the stuff that's had deteriorating fundamentals, definitely. So fundamentals have deteriorated, and that's why it's less attractive. You want to get out of that stuff. And then second, there's stuff where the valuation has gone up, it's been a winner for you. And I think on that stuff, you want to hold it a little longer than you think you should. Because as a deep value investor, there's a difference between where you should buy and where you should sell. Ideally, that should be big. And so you need to hold it for long enough to realize that gap. And then I think the other really important thing about this and something we've done a lot of work on in thinking about portfolio construction and thinking about what we do more broadly, is the realization that within the best ranked things, and this is true for most quantitative strategies, a disproportionate share of the most attractive things to virtually any quantitative ranking model are microcap or small-cap. And they're illiquid. So they're trading a few hundred thousand dollars worth a day. And I think for value, if you just rank by price to book, the average market cap of the cheapest decile is going to be less than $400 million. It's going to be in the micro-cap land. So you have to make, I think, a business or strategic decision of, do I want to own micro-caps? And if I want to own micro-caps, Do I want to be able to sell those microcaps to rebalance? And if you want to buy them, and if you want to sell them, you've got to be limited in how much volume you're putting into any one name, probably three to five times daily volume. And then you say, well, I want it to be a meaningful position, say a 1% position or 50 basis point position. You're going to very quickly get to the idea that true small value, true deep value, true Fama French value has a very limited capacity, very, very limited. And so I think one of the other things that we've thought of as a business decision, as a strategic decision, as a firm decision, is to say, if we want to do small value, one of the things that was within our control is capping capacity so we can actually buy the cheapest things. Even if none of our analytics were good, just fishing in a pond that is so much less efficient where the vast majority of our peers and competitors can't even trade, I think that that is a unique thing that we really stress and focus on, that we really can trade the full universe in a way that most people can't.
0: So when you put together the desire for, say, industry diversification, these liquidity issues, how do you weight positions in the portfolio?
1: I think that this is one of those things which I don't think a computer that we've designed can answer yet. I mean, I think there's an art to it. And I think there are a few things that play into it. One of the things that plays into it, obviously, is how highly ranked the stock is. How good of an example is it according to your model? The next thing is liquidity. And then I'd say the third thing is how well you know the stock. Let me say, give an example, something that jumps from being ranked 500 in your ranking to number one in your ranking system. and You say, oh, I've never seen this company before, and it looks really interesting, and it's an added diversification because we've never seen a company in this industry before. And you say, well, how did it end up jumping from five hundred to number one? Well, there's only one way, which is the stock price went down, eighty or ninety percent. Right. And so then you step back and you say, Why did the stock price go down? And what does that sharp drop in stock price tell me is likely to happen next quarter? And the answer is something really bad and not pretty, and you might not want to find out. And so what we also then think is as the portfolio is in motion, right? You're constantly rebalancing, you should be really careful about new things. Really careful. Because Those new things, the price movement that made them interesting to you is also signaling a very high degree of uncertainty about very short-term changes in the business. So what you want to do really is wait on those have it sit at the top of the screen for a quarter, maybe buy a small position, you hold it for a little bit, and you basically want to wait for the information to clear through the stock. Wait for a quarterly earnings report or two to flush through, see whether that 90% drop in market price was justified, and then put the position on.
0: And that core part of your portfolio, so outside of these new positions that you're putting in solely, does it look closer to an equal weight than a spread and just
1: trying to get at the core underlying thesis exactly yeah and i think we basically end up at three to four percent positions but equal weighted in micro cap deep value you can be equal weighted for about five minutes and then that random thing goes up ten percent in a day on no news and it's no longer equal weighted so in reality it never is but that's the theory
0: and then how do you trade off the concept of transactions cost, right? In theory, these things are bouncing around, and if they bounce up and down and up and down, you may be able to capture a little bit of buy low, sell high.
1: Yeah, I think it's patience. I think you just sit on the bid and you just say, hey, we're these are illiquid stocks. We're providing a little liquidity as a buyer. But any excessive provision of liquidity is going to move the stock price in our names. Even if you try to buy in our stocks, you try to buy a million dollars worth of them, you're going to move the price almost. So buy 50000 a day for two weeks. I mean, it's painful. But our logic, again, is that if we are doing things that other people are unwilling to do or unable to do, unwilling because it's tedious and boring, unable because of capacity issues, and we can do that, that should be where alpha is. I mean, that should be what you're compensated for. There's a fundamental logic. If you're buying really cheap, really out of favor, really illiquid things, you're seeing multiple ways to win. That's the logic. How did the
0: credit strategy come about?
1: I met Greg Obenshain through a mutual friend. He'd been at Apollo and had this similar revelation about credit that I'd had about private equity, which is that he said, if you think about the common error in private equity, it's paying too much for future growth that doesn't end up happening, and then you get in trouble and you put on too much leverage. In credit, it's a different problem, which is basically people reach for yield. Everybody says, hey, we're going to start with a screen. Of what's our target rate of return? Eight. Okay, what's everything that yields eight? Okay, what's the best thing that yields eight? Well, it turns out lending is perhaps the second oldest profession. Yields are pretty effective predictors of loss ratios. So there's not a really logical reason to think that something that yields 8% should return more than something that yields 5%. There's no logic there, interestingly enough. If you think through why something's yielding 8, it's because of the losses that are priced into that versus something that yields 5. So if you think that nobody can foresee the future with any accuracy, those should have the same expected return. And then you say, well, all these active investors are chasing the stuff that yields eight because they think that's the only way that they can get an eight. That stuff should actually be overpriced. Maybe that stuff should actually yield a nine. It's been pushed down to an eight by overcompetition of active managers. On the other side, in credit, you've got all the institutions that are bound to own investment-grade stuff. So you've got this two-sided barbell where you have pockets of excessive demand on both ends of the curve. And in the middle, in the stuff that never looks that attractive, the sort of four today, four to five percent yielding stuff. You say, well, why would you own? It's not investment grade. The yield's not attractive enough to interest anyone. How does that stuff actually do? And long-term empirical research actually finds that that stuff, the sort of Goldilocks of the bond market, does better. That it actually has the highest expected returns. And so, what you want to think of as doing in credit is buying the highest quality, highest yielding bonds. So essentially, that middle, the Goldilocks territory, and that's also the area where upgrades are most likely. So rather than thinking, I want to buy yield, say, I want to buy things that get upgraded. And then all of a sudden, you're going to shift your focus to the highest quality. Now, what really interested me about this, in addition to the logic of it and the empirics of it really resonating with me, was the idea that adding someone that specialized in credit would be very valuable to us on the equity side. If we're owners of levered companies, we've really got to understand how the lenders think. And we've got to understand exactly how the bonds trade. So a big focus for our research has been integrating Bond and equity data to say, okay, how can we take what we know about the bonds, what our models are predicting about the bonds, and how can we find if that predicts about equity markets? So, one of the classic questions is who's smarter, credit investors or equity investors? So, one of the things we've just recently done is looked at, okay, let's look at trailing price momentum for the bonds and the stocks, and let's look at things where the stock went way up and the bonds went down. Who's right? Turns out in those cases that the bond market's right the stock should come down. Let's conversely look at stuff where the bonds go up and the stock goes down, buy the stock. The bonds, again, are right. Now, what about where the bonds go up and the stock goes down, what should you do with the bond? Turns out, here's where it gets interesting, you should actually sell the bond. The equity is providing valuable signals about the bond. So basically, both are providing feedback to the other, that when there's a divergence, the divergence mean reverts. The stock and the bond ideally should trade in the same way, right? And most of the time they do. In the cases where they don't, both are wrong. We're just starting to dig into more of this. But these are the type of insights we're trying to unfold about the interaction between how the debt is trading, how the equity is trading, that hopefully will improve the performance of both our equity and credit strategies.
0: Some of this research, as you're learning it, you're putting it out in weekly emails. They're always sort of interesting and data-driven. How does that integrate into your process?
1: So I think it's in a number of ways. One is that we have sort of a written culture at Verdad. We want to write up our results and share them internally, and then we want to share them with our investors. And you could say, well, why would you share your research with others? Your stuff's just going to get arbed away. And we think, actually, it's not going to get arbed away. It's not going to get arbed away for a few reasons. One, stuff we're trading is so illiquid that even if the guys at AQR or DFA read it, what are they going to do? how are you going to move a $10 billion portfolio? I mean, it's just not a concern. It's not going to have any effect on our arbitrage. And second, we probably believe that the deepest arbitrage in doing deep value, in doing illiquid deep value, is basically taking on volatility pain. That buying the stuff is wildly volatile. If you add up the years when the market is down, and then the years that small value underperforms the rest of the market, that's 50% of years. The easiest way to win in small value is just last enough years that you're actually hitting that 50% of years that are winners. And so many people just get flushed out of small value because they don't have a long enough time horizon. So, what we're trying to do is to our investors is to say, look, you need to be making your investment decisions on very long term empirical data. And I think so many people make it on short-term returns chasing. And that's not the right way to make decisions, especially in our corner of the market. Very obvious from the empirical data. In fact, the best time to buy small values when it's had the worst trailing returns. So knowing all this and trying to design a business and to say, OK, we want investors and we want ourselves to profit from our insights. Well, the hardest challenge actually to profiting from our insights is staying the course through periods of volatility, which again, happen every other year. You're either the market is down, small value is underperforming, you're looking like an idiot half the time. Yet the long-term returns of owning small value are very, very attractive. So what do you have to do? You have to get investors to understand your process, understand your logic so well that they buy into sticking with the strategy long enough to actually earn the profits from it. So if we try to add up our competitive advantages, one, we're doing illiquid things no one else can do. Two, hopefully we're smart. Although, again, smart is a commodity these days. Everyone in asset management is smart. But smart and doing things that are illiquid and low capacity is relatively unique. But the third and most important is getting our investors bought in to sticking with a good strategy for the long term rather than returns chasing. And I think anyone who's on an investment committee knows the intense pressure these days to load up the portfolio with growth. Because you've got that guy on the committee that for five years is saying, buy growth, buy growth, buy growth. And all of these quantitatively educated CFA people that know the names Fama in French are saying, no, no, growth doesn't work buy value. And you know what? They've been wrong now for nine years in the United States. So the growth guy in the committee is saying, you guys are all idiots and no one's been listening to me. It's time to load up. And by the way, that incremental change we did to add growth worked. And so you have these tremendous, tremendous pressures. And I think what we're trying to do is to arm our investors to see the world the way we do, which is through a very long time horizon, very long-term research. And I think that doesn't just apply to writing exclusively about our strategy or exclusively about small value. Because we think that there's a lot of other things that you should be thinking about. We think that people should be very wary of a lot of the sexy products being pushed on Wall Street. We think people should be extremely wary about private equity. We think people should be extremely wary about private credit. We think people should be extremely wary about venture capital. We think a lot of these very hot, sexy things are really, really risky. And so I think what we're trying to do is to use our weekly research not only as a way of enhancing our written culture, getting everyone aligned on the research, pushing pressure on people to say, OK, I get that you've done all this work, but push it to an insight that matters to us or to our investors. And then second, to really building out a very strong relationship with our investor base where we're actually helping them, not just with our own portion of the portfolio. Small value, we know is should be a small allocation for everybody because of its volatility. But the 95% of the money they don't have with us, how can we add value to that such that they're appreciative of our insight even in the 50% of years when we look like idiots, which is inevitably going to happen?
0: As you walk through the areas of these asset classes where you see risk, there's always this notion that, well, one day we're going to have this crisis. How do you think about your levered equity strategy weathering that same period of crisis?
1: So I think that there are hard problems in finance and impossible questions in finance. And there are no easy questions. Well, maybe there are some easy questions, actually. But those tend to be very, very simple ones. But I'd say the impossible question is, when's the next recession? Nobody knows. I guess Ray Dalio has predicted 10 of the last three. So I think that that's a fool's errand. And that's why, very broadly, trying to market time out of risky strategies tends to be a bad idea. You need to set your asset allocation knowing that a recession is a reasonably high probability and being convinced that you should stick through whatever it is you're buying, even if that happens. Buy and hold, I think, tends to be, now there's some quants who think that some of these market timing rules, like moving averages, and I don't know if I believe that stuff. I guess there's some empirical support for it, but let's set that aside and basically say it's an impossible problem. Nobody can tell you when to sell equities. And really, you shouldn't do it. You should just set your risk tones, take as much equity risk as possible for the long term as you think is maintainable based on your emotional reaction to risk. Another question, which is actually one we've been spending a lot of time on, is what should you buy during a crisis? This is actually an easier question because we can look back and say, okay, let's go look back. And we've spent about a year and a half doing this research. We looked at the last eight recessions, which we define as when high yield spreads rise above six. That's mostly in line with the definition of a recession. But there are two or three things that that picks up, like the 2016 event that wouldn't be caught as a formal recession. And there are a few things that are formal recessions that don't really affect markets for whatever reason. And then we said, okay, if you look at, say, three months after spreads hit six, so you're right in the thick of things, what should you have bought? What should you have bought in bonds? What should you have bought in stocks? What should you have bought by asset class? And one of the things that we found, I mean, there are a few overwhelmingly interesting things. The first is that returns are more predictable in times of crisis than they are outside of times of crisis. In fact, simple quantitative models tend to have about eight times the level of statistical power during recessions than during times of economic growth. Why is this the case? In times of easy money, a lot of stupid things work. A lot of unprofitable companies see massive increase in stock price. A lot of bad ideas get funded. Some of those bad ideas turn out to be good ideas. And that's surprising. And so a lot of simple valuation models or simple quant models don't really work all that well in times of great growth and easy money. However, when a recession comes, all external funding gets cut off. All the venture money shuts off. All the new private credit money shuts off. All the bond money shuts off. All the bank money shuts off. There's no external financing. So the people that survive are the people that have profitable businesses that generate cash flow. And the people that don't survive are the idiots who would otherwise, maybe in a good market, do well. And so what you see is simple value models. If you control for, hey, let's look at profitable companies. turns out profitable companies that are bought in times of recession do much better than unprofitable. Companies that generate free cash flow do much better coming out of a recession than companies that don't. And what's most interesting is that buying cheap and illiquid companies does massively better. So if you go into the market and say, I'm going to take advantage of this recession by buying small companies where the stock price has just gotten puked out because people are panicking, but it's profitable and cash flow generative, but it's so cheap and it's illiquid, which means that the small change, if the market was down 5, this thing's so illiquid it went down 10 that day. You go and buy that stuff, your returns coming out of the recession are extremely attractive. So what we've been doing a lot of work on is saying, okay, how do you combine these factors? How do you basically come up with the ideal way to invest in a time of crisis? And there are some surprising things that we found. Like the distressed debt doesn't do all that well. Everybody says, oh, the thing I want to do in the next crisis is buy a lot of distressed debt. Well, we have a simple rule for Verdad on both the equity side and the credit side, which don't buy things that go bankrupt don't also buy things that already went bankrupt. It turns out a lot of the things that went bankrupt are bad businesses. And they're not going to just rebound just because the market liquidity returns. They're bad and now they're done. And so distressed debt returns have been a disappointment. What has been much better is buying the small, cheap stuff that isn't going to go bankrupt, that actually is fundamentally healthy, but because it's small, liquid, and cyclical, sold way, way off, way more than it should have. And when you put those two
0: things together, I mean, there's this kind of preparation for your clients and communication that to get to that point, where these types of names that you're buying in your portfolio do better. They're going to take more pain going down. So what does the net net look like into the recession before these things sell off more than other things and then bounce back stronger?
1: Yeah. So I'd say basically the way we think about it is through the full cycle, you want to own small value. It is a good strategy for the long term. And you should have a permanent allocation to small value. Maybe it shouldn't be big. Maybe it should be 5% of your portfolio, 10%, 20%. I don't know. However convinced you are and however much tolerance you have of all. But you're absolutely right. It's going to sell off worse coming into a recession. It's going to do much better on the way out. And net, net, you're going to end up ahead. However, you've got to have a lot of pain tolerance. So that allocation should be relatively small because it's got to be small enough that you can tolerate it and profit from it. However, in a time of crisis, you should double or triple your exposure. You should go in as big and as hard into small value in the middle of a recession as you possibly can, because that's when the best opportunities are created, and that's when actually your vol risk is relatively low because things have already plummeted in price. You can't get hurt falling out of the basement window. People are selling this at a fire sale. It's just not going to get that much worse, right? Now, everybody, at the time of recession, we went through, actually, this was a fun exercise, we went through all the newspapers for each one of these recessions. And we pulled out what the front page of the Wall Street Journal was saying at the time. And I'll tell you what they're saying. At basically the exact right time to buy, empirically, everything's going to get much, much worse. The economy's in free fall. Sell. That's what they're saying. So you've got to basically say, okay, I know in advance that what I should do in bonds is shift from investment grade, high quality bonds, to down in rating quality during a recession. So I want to buy the lower rated stuff, controlling for making sure that it's profitable and not going bankrupt. So if it's cash flow generative, if it's profitable and spreads have blown out such that this stuff is yield, you know, double Bs are yielding 12 or 13%. Probably a good time to go buy double B bonds instead of just owning your AAA bonds. Same is true in equities. In equities, you want to go down in quality, down in value, buy the cheaper, quote unquote, lower quality, smaller cap, less liquid names in times of crisis, because that's where the inefficiencies are. Ride it back out. And then you can move stuff back into other strategies, which might be more conducive to a booming economy, like buying high quality compounders or something. But in times of crisis, you should set a plan. And I think we've been working a lot. And we're going to release a big study about what do the empirical research say about what your plan should include, how you should react to these environments. Obviously, the first thing is don't sell risk assets at a time when they're on sale. But the next question is you should actually lean in and be aggressive. And we find that so many people today, people say it's the most unloved bull market, that everybody's sitting on the side, with they have too much cash, too much fixed income, too much market neutral assets. And what we're saying is, you know, that's fine. If that's your risk appetite, that's fine. But what you've got to do is plan to deploy that into risk assets at some point. That can't be a permanent allocation. Like, at some point, you've got to take your cash hoard you've been building and dump it into equities. At some point, and we're going to tell you, based on 50 or 60 years of evidence, that when high-yield spreads blow out past six, that's as good a time as any to start dumping money into equities. And so I think our next goal is to try to say, OK, that is really the time where you should be upping your allocation to what we do. Because what we do, or small value broadly, is a good permanent allocation But it's also something you can cyclically take advantage of. Well, great.
0: Dan, I want to leave a little time to turn to some closing questions. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family?
1: I'm a relatively dull person. I don't do anything exciting, no skydiving or anything. I do two things. I read and I walk. And that's basically it. So it's not as exciting to talk about. But I find uh, very long walks to clear the head. And I find that 30 or 40 minutes into a walk, sometimes you get your best ideas. And then I just read constantly, which I think is the best ideas have already been had. I think sometimes everything I do is just rediscovering other people's old ideas that everyone's forgotten. What's your biggest pet peeve? One of the things that you learn about being an investor is that if you're buying something, someone else is selling it, and you both have good reasons for doing so. And so you develop this intuitive sense of maybe not empathy, but a sense that for every pro, there's a con. For every argument, there's a counter argument. And I think that in our stepping out just of investing right into the broader world, you meet people who are so dogmatic and so convinced that their view of the world is the only right view. And I think that what we need more in our country today is the ability to say, this is what I think, and I believe it very much. But I can see how you'd believe the opposite. I can understand the logic behind your argument. And I think investors are so good at that because we always are saying, okay, why am I so lucky for this investment to be coming my way? What's the bear case? But I think my pet peeve is exiting investing and meeting people who have never thought that way and having them be 100% convinced they're right. And I'm like, look, I I spend so much time on my day job and I'm pretty convinced I'm like 60% right on a good day. And how can you be 100% confident that you're 100% right? That is my biggest pet peeve. All right. How do you
0: think about your kind of social media strategy professionally?
1: What I love about sharing our research through email, through Twitter, is that it's like being in a section at business school. And not just the standard like corporate strategy session. You're in there with some of the most interesting, well-studied people, many of whom are sitting on their computer fact-checking the stuff that you're sending out. And so what I love about it is the chance to hone your ideas. And I love, like, you put out a trial balloon. You say, hey, look, here's something I've been doing research on. What's the feedback? And you get such great insights that I think that... Especially, I think this is why so many quantitative investors use social media and Twitter especially, because the feedback on your ideas is so good and the knowledge sharing is so good. And so I think that it's like going to the best section of business school.
0: What teaching from your parents
1: has most stayed with you? One of my father's ideas very early on, is he said, one of the best ways to succeed in America is to go to the best colleges. I don't know if my kids are going to be smart enough to get into the best colleges. So what is the best way to get into a college if you are not necessarily smart? And dad found that it was athletics. So if you're really good at sports, you can get into college even if you're not that smart. And so then dad said, well, what sports are the easiest to excel in if you're not necessarily athletic? I don't know if my kids are going to be smart. I don't know if they're going to be athletic. And then he basically did this calculation of the ratio of recruited athletes to the number of people nationally that play the sport. So my oldest brother became a male figure skater. My sister was a female ice hockey player. I did crew. My little brother did squash, and then he didn't end up being very good at squash. The dad switched him to crew, too. And so every one of us was basically a recruited athlete or had our athletics play into our college admissions. So my dad's Machiavellian scheme worked. And I think one of the things that I take away from my dad's relatively brilliant vision is planning to play in less competitive games and the importance of that. Because you don't know if you're going to be smart. You don't know if you're going to be athletic. Better off to build your base case around you not being the smartest guy in the room and maybe not being the most athletic and then figure out how to win. And the way to win is to choose the least competitive games. That's great.
0: Last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life?
1: I think I'm still learning a lot of life lessons. I just turned 33 yesterday, so I find it hard to imagine that I'm a fount of wisdom and reflection. But I'd say patience has never been my virtue. And one of the things about both being an entrepreneur and being an investor is realizing that everything, everything takes longer and is harder than you thought it would be at the outset.
0: Well, Dan, happy birthday.
1: Thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Dan. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by guests on the show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those of their firm. Managers appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement or investment recommendation by Ted or Capital Alligators.